VI Shots Live You Podcast, Episode 27. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of VI Shots. My name is Michael Ivaliotis, and this is the podcast devoted to the world of LabVIEW. With each episode, I bring you interviews, discussions, and share with you ideas for how you can take your LabVIEW development to the next level. Well, thank you everyone for joining me on this episode of the VI Shots podcast. Uh, I'm very excited today to have... um, what some of may consider a legend in the in the LabVIEW world is uh, Steve Watts. Uh, Steve is uh, an owner of SSDC and a software designer, of course, at that company. And he's here with me today on the VI Shots podcast. Welcome, Steve. Thank you very much for inter- um, asking me. Um, you throw me already, mate, calling me a, a legend. I don't, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> well, uh, I, I remember you way back when... Um, of course, your your book came out. You and I kind of have the same uh, history of LabVIEW. We started way back when, and uh, I, I was dabbling and, and doing my own kind of architectures and things in LabVIEW. And uh, I saw your book, which you co-authored with John Conway, and um, the book is called A Software Engineering Approach to LabVIEW. And the thing that struck me first about the book was the title, because I remember that at the time, there was a lot of books about you know how to you know, uh, the mechanics of how to create a program in LabVIEW. Um, but your book was the first one that actually had the the word software engineering in the title. <laughs> so I, that kind of grabbed me first of all. I said, oh, okay, well, um, I want to do software engineering and I want to do it in LabVIEW and there's a book to do it. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, how, what made you decide to, to write a book uh, about this topic? Well, we'd... Well, going going back to the early day, I was I was looking back actually at uh, the version of LabVIEW I I started on, and uh, I've been saying I started in 1998. It appears I was it was I'm two years earlier than that, so I reckon I was 1996. And I did my first program. I, I had it foisted on me, like I think a lot of people do. And uh, and up to that point, I'd been I'd I'd done everything from assembler to HP Basic to Pascal to you know, all sorts, uh, typical sort of test engineer, really. And uh, and all my projects went the same way. They all started off well, you know, all the way through everything went tickety-boo. And really that last sort of 5% then became a huge struggle. And I just put it down to software being difficult. Um, so I, the, the company that came down issued used LabVIEW. So I did the first sort of benchmark. Being a, a scientific sort, I, I, I did a rewrote a project I'd already done in Turbo Pascal, uh, and this was quite well for, for the time. It was quite a big project. It was a SCADA-based system, and it was a quite a, a good equivalent because it was all prepackaged SCADA stuff. Um, and I rewrote the entire lump of software, which took me probably about four or five months to write in Turbo Pascal. I rewrote it in five days, but I wasn't. And so yes, you know, I thought, wow, that's this is great. I love this language, but I still had that sort of a uncomfortable bit at the end of the project. Uh, John was working as a contractor uh, at, for the same company, and I spoke to him about that, and he said, ah, well, you, just because you're not designing it up front, you're just writing code, and 
fault finding and fixing and well, it's code and fix, isn't it? Um, so we started we started talking really about software design, um, which sort of led on to to such things as as coupling, cohesion, encapsulation, and you know things I bang on about all the time. I'd never even heard of these things, so I'd classed myself as a software designer by that point because test engineering was essentially writing software at that point. But I had never heard of these concepts, so off I went and did my research and. And me and John talked more, and he he'd done a lot more sort of formal software design than me, so he was he was very much ahead of me. Um, and he already had the name for Alcod and and had it in his mind how it was going to work. But at the time, it wasn't quite there. And I, I, I don't. This is where someone's going to hopefully prove me wrong. But I got a funny feeling that strict type desks and things like that weren't around. Certainly, we didn't know about them. Um, so we we were using like strings to interface our components and things like that um, as our message sending mechanism. Um, and really sort of going on from that, we we sort of just honed our ideas. And the other sort of nice bit for us was we went off and did two similar projects at the same time. Now, we had our methodology, how we would design the project. Um, and we'd agreed that beforehand. So we would, you know, do noun passes and make components and put it together like that. But we didn't talk about the actual components and the architecture itself, how that would come together. Um, so this was in the late 90s, probably. And when we came out with our two bits of code, they were vaguely similar. You know, there were pressure transducers, and I think another one was a density transducer. But our test systems, architecture, looked very, very similar. And... That to us, we thought, oh, we're, we're onto something here. There's, there's some common, you know, if you set some common rules, you'll come out with common software, which, you know, seemed like a very good idea at the time. Uh, at the time, we were also both uh, embarking on a, a night school sort of education because we, we were trying to get up to speed with actual doing software engineering and software design. Um, and we were doing, at that time, an OOP course in Smalltalk. And there was lots of talk about MVC and things like that, which, funny enough, you went to the CLA Summit last year, was the uh, conversation we were having um, last year. But at the time, you could see that a message-driven user interface would be the, the way to, to alleviate an awful lot of problems that we were having with our, our, our code. So we came up with, with the way of having a queued sort of message system for all user interface updates and that was another big step forward and we thought ooh we're, we're, it's coming together now we, we're getting something together um in 2000 i did the the normal thing of saying well i think a lot of people did it they, they sort of looked at the new millennium and looked at their life and sort of said well I, 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 me i was just bored of working in a big company um making test systems and repairing test systems so i jumped ship and uh, joined john uh, with with his company, which was he was the original owner of SSDC, um, and the idea really it was originally SSDC was a was a vehicle for um, him to do his hourly paid contracting work, uh, which is a, a common sort of tax thing in, in in the UK to to set up your own business to do that. Um, but when I I joined him, we we had a more of a view of doing fixed price work, and I, I've always liked the idea of doing fixed price work because it's, it's it makes you a better engineer. You know, you're doing everything for the right reason. I'd, I'd employed hourly paid contractors before, and I and sometimes they worked to the hours rather than to the project. Um, 
and that disturbed me. I, I could see I could see me going down that route and, and not being very happy with it. So we started doing fixed price work, um, and we ended up in a in a company doing um, telecoms uh, and nano positioning stuff. A very a good company actually, um, and they had a great big test system. They, they'd employed sort of four or five contractors to be writing this system for a year, and it was essentially it was they were trying to fit a these four to five um, contractors software together and it was in an awful mess. So we sort of came in and, and dictated to them that they should have common interfaces and, and how they should design the interfaces and use um, uh, our, our methodology essentially. And these guys, again, like me, had never heard of sort of these these techniques and uh, and they were sort of blown away with it. And, and we, we came out of, of that project with, with them sort of, and, and these these guys were on twice as much as me, but they were sort of saying, you know, you really should should write this down, and and that's really how we came to to write the book. Um, but it was a uh, yeah, it was quite a hard task because we wanted it to be unique. Um, you know, a, a lot of the books at the time were the first twelve chapters were essentially the first twelve chapters of the. Um, of the manual that you get with with LabVIEW, and and we didn't want that. We just wanted it to be very slim and and just original material, which is it's quite hard to do. It was a it was a hard effort. Um, well, definitely, but I think I think it paid off in the end because it introduced the LabVIEW world to I think something that a lot of us were uh, thinking about, but not able to put together in a cohesive kind of book <laughs> form, because um, a lot of us were doing a lot of these things independently you know state machines and componentized architectures mm. but you've kind of put it all together in kind of a cohesive uh, discussion here one of the one of the core chapters is uh, uh lcod which is I, I say i call it lcod but yes yeah that's what uh, we call it it's what, lab view component oriented design oh there you go lab view component oriented design it is a vi with a loop and a shift register that contains state information and then there's there's an enum coming in that uh, controls the functionality of it, but it's more than a functional global. Can you talk a little bit about this this LCOD concept? Well, the term I mean, we always just like to use the term component. That's what we call it. Um, and we we thought actually, national instruments would go with that. We thought so we, when we sort of introduced it originally. Ah, oh, components. I'd like that, but they didn't, and they started using this term functional global variable, which I, I you know, you've seen in my rant, I don't like it very much because it's not a global variable. I mean, a global variable is, is you can use them as that, but if you don't let the internal data out, it's not a global variable. So I think the term that is being preferred at the moment is action engine, which is fine, I, I, to be quite honest with you. I, I, the LCOD in itself is a, is a mechanism for, for describing how you should encapsulate um, or how you can encapsulate, not really should, how you can encapsulate these ideas, how you can have a single VI that you give messages to which does a cohesive set of actions. I mean, the one I always like is I, I had one to driving a Word document and you've got your messages which you send which do all the stuff on the Word document and inside is all the um, complexity to deal with Word documents. Um, so that cohesion is is that single purpose is it makes it a reusable lump which you can then go and, and take out and use. Um, but the actual key mechanisms are you have an internal 
data structure, permanent data structure. You have a method of sending messages. You have, I mean, we, we actually, and we, and we, I'm just beginning to build up again, but we also used to have um, rules for preconditions and postconditions. So you have a, a preconditions and postconditions on this component. So it would check its data going in and check its data going out. Um, and really, it was it was essentially all of those things put together would make a cohesive lump. And then you make um, your system. So inside that component would be other components, and is you know and above. So I mean, take a test system. I think which is the architecture right, we talked about. You tend to have a test component which describes all the tests. So going up, you would be more. Um, focused towards the customer application going down you'd be more focused towards the, the hardware um so the abstraction would would work like that so it, it, just, it, it was just quite a nice simple way to describe those sort of techniques um yeah so when but, you you know people, mm -hmm. people will sort of think ah oh, well you know it, i mean works for us very well and, uh, but it's not the only way and and the thing is, you need to judge any other methodology or any other method by those same standards because these 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 techniques are years and years and years and years and years old. You know, they go back to the late sixties. They're they're really very old techniques, but they I, I still don't think they can be beaten for describing a modular system. Um, Basically, when you when you say messages, um, I think you mean like the enum, right? The enum selector. That's, that's a, that was our mechanism, but originally it was strings, right? But, um, uh, yeah, because the, the enum basically is uh, prevents you know typos and things like that, and plus there's predefined messages. I, I, I like the idea that you could you you could pop it up and it would tell you exactly what that particular co component can do. Mm -hmm. A bit like, to be quite honest with you, the 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 thing I always quite liked, and I know it's a bit maligned, is is if Microsoft had done it properly, the ActiveX component. If you if you look at an ActiveX component. Mm -hmm. You have your properties and methods. It actually spawned a complete industry. You know, a lot of people made a lot of money making ActiveX components. Yeah, and and a lot of people saved an awful lot of time plugging those ActiveX components with all their problems, but pro plugging them into their software. And actually, I, I I thought it was quite a nice sort of way of doing it. I, I I still I still think it's quite a nice way of doing it. To be quite honest, yeah, I still if you look at most of our software, it's still fairly similar in construct. Now, now, one thing uh, with this component design, um, I don't know if you've thought about this, but uh, it's kind of a singleton approach, right? I mean, you're you can't spawn multiple instances of these components. Uh, no, I had, quite, uh, I had quite an interesting discussion online with Mr. Mercer about that. Um, I think my my perspective is that at the design stage, you should know how many things you want to spawn. Now, deep down, you can make it as spawnable as possible as, as you want but as you go up the the architecture uh, i think the uh and i think also he, he he said it wasn't a very good analogy but he, i think in my in my blog i'd I give a, a fairly low level database example and he said oh what what if you what if you want another database well perhaps <laughs> i'm a fixed price job if my my customer said that to me i'd punch him one because <laughs> it's these things need to be designed in um right so I, I, I've got a slightly different view, I, I, and it, I think it might be a more, rather than a, a software design perspective view, it might be a more kind of, I don't know whether it's a test engineering view, is that I design to the job. And if, if they come to me and they say they want to be able to create lots of um, 
different versions or different updates or or to spawn lots of different instances of something then obviously i would design for that but it doesn't happen very often it's not actually a request i mean the the, the better request I, I i get is you know can it be easy to read and i think sometimes and i'm i'm preempting actually one of the things i was going to talk about in my blog but I, sometimes there is a um you sacrifice readability for scalability and i've worked on well, i've been brought into sort of rescue projects that are very very scalable but so complex that you can't scale them you know and it's it, yeah no it's, one, it, it's yeah it's a very very tight line you know you know what it is I, I've, I've seen very very good software but it's a very tight line between sort of making everything so scalable that everyone can make multiple objects of everything throughout the code but then the code becomes quite hard to read and and th- th- that's actually one of the areas I'm, I'm really interested in now is um I've, I've had a few sort of rescue jobs recently where you go in and and they've been written by very clever people who've done lots of very advanced sort of architectural stuff but unfortunately those clever people then leave and go and do other work and 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 it, then quite often it's left with people with very little lab view knowledge who are kind of left to look after this stuff and it's a it's a struggle and it's and i know it's a, an uncomfortable reality but it is a reality I, I've, I've seen it multiple times and and lab view sometimes gets the blame for that you know it's oh it's, it's a flaky language it's a this it's a that i mean well, you've, you've been doing it as long as me you know yeah you know, well i think a, i think um, one of the problems there is that lab view is readable by everyone um mm-hmm. Anybody that can double click a VI and look at its diagram can feel like they, well, sure, I can see the drawing. It's look at that. You know, I can see what's going on. If they look at a bunch of text code and they're not a programmer, they just basically don't even look at it. They just pass it off to the programmer. Um, But the fact that they can see the diagram and they can have an opinion on it, (laughs) they can say, well, that's easy. It's just a bunch of blocks. It Um, takes a long time to get to those bunch of blocks there. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you're you're you have opinions about a lot of uh, the kind of people that exist out in the uh, in the Lavi world, and um, I mentioned one of your blogs blogs posts that you know you were talking about different categories of people um, that uh, that develop, and I think what you're talking about being clever was was you were calling them the geeks, the syntax jockey. Yep, yep. There's yeah, I've I've been one of those. I mean, half of these things uh, are ones that you, uh, you 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 either come across or you see in yourself as well. And that's the the other one. I mean, I've I've worked with an awful lot of programmers and employed a fair few and got rid of one or two. Um, so it's it's kind of the generic type. I, I was I was more interested rather than I, I I think sometimes I come across as 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 critical of other people and critical. Of, <laughs> And I think that might be a British thing. I, I don't know whether because you want to see the, the negative rather than see the positive. I think I think Fabiola made a comment whether she said it here. You you haven't mentioned any good programmers, but there's part of me that sort of says, well, it wouldn't be a very interesting blog if I just came on and said, oh, isn't everyone marvellous? <laughs> so it's not the way my mind works, and it's it's wrong really. I I, I have to admit. But there you go. There's, you can't change how you're brought up, I suppose. Well, I I agree with the cleverness factor, and I'm kind of worried about um, the new the new frameworks that are coming out. For example, um, that use a lot of the the LVOOP, uh programming framework in LabVIEW, uh, object oriented, and I feel that um, a lot of people are diving into it without actually knowing 
uh, object-oriented design correctly, and they're just I jumping was, into it. I was quite surprised when when I did the the European CLA um, summit. You, 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 I, I was chairing it, and they, they, they said, "Oh, what do you want to do then? Oop, let's do oop. Everyone wants to do it." I said, "Okay, well, if we're going to do oop, we're going to do UML. Why? What's UML?" <laughs> What? <laughs> you don't. You you can't do one without the other. They they skip along hand in hand. You know, it's otherwise again, it's just the same thing. You're just planting uh, VIs. Okay, they might be, um, they might be sort of linked together by pretty coloured wires, but you're still just planting them without thought over your your project. And and uh, yeah, I I I agree. I'm not I'm not really going to express too many opinions that the, the my my first introduction to goo uh, to oop was lab oop was not a very good one in the fact that they showed me a block diagram i couldn't understand so they they were it was on a it was on an example that was easy to do and then they showed you the the, the oop method which they, they said oh this is easy to do this is how you would do it in lab and i said hey, oh yeah so, and this is how you do it in lab oop and it was really complex, and I couldn't understand it, and it really worried me. But like all these things, it's, it's National Instruments provides tools. It's, it's up to the rest of us to make the designs from those tools, I think. I think that was actually the, the, one of the things I took out of the, the, the LabVIEW-OOP thing, is that, yeah, they, they give you these tools, but by concept, National Instruments shouldn't be giving you cohesive tools. You as a designer should be making cohesive tools out of out of them and making nice designs that people can read. Um, I, I do share some of your concerns, though. <laughs> well, I guess I really it, it could be more work for us <laughs> as consultants to go in there and fix problems. But uh, it's horrible work, though, isn't it? Don't, don't you think it's horrible and satisfactory work? And and it, when I've rescued jobs, it just me. I mean, all my company's jobs. I can support or anyone else in my company can support because we've got a common methodology. These rescue jobs I've put in, you 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 can't. It's just so hard and so so they they want it fixed in a in a day. And I, I know with with any of my sort of test systems, I'll go in if they want something added, hour work and I'll go out. Now, we don't do ultra complex projects by default. And for some reason, I don't know why that doesn't tend to be our market or whether we, you know, but so, you know, you could say, oh, you've just, you know, the 120 projects you've done in the last 12 years have, have all been easy. But uh, there is got to be some sort of common ground. I mean, the, the complex system, the two complex systems that we've had to rescue recently, one had one M-series card as its equipment, and the other one is essentially just a sequence test system. But they're both horrendously complex. And so, you know, somebody's made that decision to make it complex. But uh, it's, I found actually that the, the, the CLA summit in America opened my eyes to actually not all use cases are the same. So I sort of stomp around saying, oh, we should make it all simple. We should make it as simple as possible and easy to read. But actually, that's not everyone's use case, is it? So, um, you know, in, in, a, in a company where you've, you're the only one looking after it and, and expected to look after it, Perhaps the scalability argument becomes a very much more interesting use case. I mean, for me, I was very, very scared of just becoming a support company to the software I wrote. So we worked very hard to make it 
sort of easy and flexible and easy to use and easy to maintain. And and from that, you know, we don't do a lot of support, which is great for me because I don't like support. I like I like designing stuff. Right. So it's a but you know, it's not everyone's use case. I've I've also known one or two companies who have made a very good living supporting dodgy software. <laughs> um, so you you mentioned earlier that you you like working on fixed cost work. How do you how do you manage to um, sort of rein the project in or or put uh, what do you put in place to make sure that the project is developed within that budget that the customer gives you or actually are you that you define well, up front? Yes, we define up front. The 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 general way is you go in knowing that the last 5% of the project is they're going to want changes. So you design flexibility, which is um, I, I, one of the, the new bits of the podcast I was going to write was a, an argument, but you know, flexibility versus scalability, um, because they are different. Um, and I'm very, very keen on flexibility because quite often the, the things that customers want at the end of the project are, this is the first time they've seen it running. Oh, could you just put this over here? Could oh, you add this graph? Could you add a button? Could you, you know, change the way this sort of works? So, you know, the state machines, the um, MVC type sort of um, uh, user interface stuff, it all plays into that. The configurable, you know, taking all of everything, all the constants out and making them configurable. That's the kind of stuff customers want to change. Um, very, very seldom do they say, Oh no! I want two databases instead of one. You know, it's not, that's not the kind of decisions that that they make. It's it's, gen, it's generally look and feel and the way it, the way it operates, which which you can you can design in right at the start. What we tend to do is ha- always have a design phase. So we um ha- we we essentially we use a template, which is our our normal system, which allows us to probably within a day or so get a a button screen working prototype going, which we then sit down at the design review with the customer and say, this is how it's going to look, you know, and, and um, you can sort of simulate a lot of instruments and, and, and get a lot of the work done at that point. So it's all to do with seeing things working and then getting requirements. Uh, from that perspective, you you then sort of, if it's a very complex, undefined project, you you would do that bit not fixed price, but at the design review, you come back with a fixed price. But generally, we, we do the fixed price. Um, it's not an easy way to make, make a living, though. <laughs> if you've seen how, how poor I look, <laughs> you'll, uh, you'll, you'll see it's not an easy way to make a living. But uh, it does make you lean, you know. It does make you, uh, make you kind of do the things that are, are needed, you know, only. It keeps it all trimmed down. And, so... Uh, a lot of um, a lot of customer interaction that I've experienced is that uh, they don't really tell you everything, and they they I think I think a lot of the onus is on us to put things in sort of that um, customers expect to be there. Yes. For example, um, they want to save a file, so they click on the save button. And a little bit of coding that we've always done is well, if a file exists of the same name, you have to prompt them to make sure that they don't overwrite an existing file. Yep. Um, the customer won't tell you that. They expect you to know to do that correctly. Um, and those type of things, there's a lot of things like that that I think that you know we're responsible for. Uh, another thing is you know configurations. Customer expects to be able to load multiple configurations, save their configurations, and th- things like that. So do you 
put that as a as a chunk and say, well, <clears throat> configuration management of your test sequences or whatever that is, or your parameters. The software well, will what, have this component that does this, for example. One of the little rules we always run by is that if it's got a constant in it, then that is a prime uh, thing for taking out and, and using as a configurable item. We, we don't like constants in software, really. Um, so generally, our template has got all the configuration stuff thrown in it. Um, so all of that comes already made, you know. Uh, the... The, the configurable aspect of, of software is 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 very very important. It comes with the flexibility, you know. That it's, it's very very important to have it configurable. And you know, I, there's not many customers, that, like you say, who they don't know they want it, but right. they really do want it configurable, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. And it, I mean, the thing it does for us is it frees us up, so we don't have to make a lot of decisions. We just have to give them the capability to make those decisions, and that's the great thing about configurable type software is you're you're you said okay you make that decision now and, and away you go um i think really most of us gnarly old engineers what what we do now is is it's it's a bit more i, I don't know what the american business is like but but i found a lot of the old skills have gone um and you're dealing with project managers mostly and so you have to actually learn all of the the job yourself. So sometimes, sometimes you know you you're, you're thrown into a company and and they ask you to test something, and they don't know how it works. So the, the, there's additional costs there, which you know you you look at a standard sort of project, and it's it's not standard at all because they can't help you. Um, so th those kind of things are, are are kind of important. Reporting and databasing and are all. And error handling and all that sort of thing are, are all areas which are easy to leave off your fixed price quote, I think. Right. Those are the dangers that could cause yeah. the project to overrun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for control systems, it's it's set up. That's the one thing I've really learned is, is you write the software. And no matter how many times you put it into a quote, it's like, we'll give you the software to set up your control system. Nah, they don't want to do that. You, you, you will end up setting up the control system. And, and, you know, depending on the type of control system, they can take ages. You know, if you've got something like a vacuum furnace, which takes like two hours to pull down, the actual control cycle to just to get enough evidence to be able to set up the control system just takes forever. You know, it can take weeks and weeks. And that's, you know, you can get really stung on that sort of thing. So it makes, uh, yeah, it makes you an honest engineer doing it. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, you mentioned um, that a lot of the customers don't know exactly how their product behaves. Um, for example, you would, this especially true, I guess, for new product testing, right? Where there's something new coming to market and they're saying, well, we need to build a test system for this. <clears throat> and it ends up being a test system slash R&D system because they're actually testing and figuring out how their, uh, how their device behaves while they're testing it. Yeah, and, and the R&D side of it, Actually, you know, talking about the scalability thing, the, the R&D and the academic work that you do, the, the scalability thing goes, starts to become more important um, because that is quite often, oh, yeah, yeah we, we've done this one test. Now I want to do five units. <laughs> so actually that sometimes work really is worth considering the scalability at those points. But um, yeah, the, 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 the R&D stuff, we don't do quite so much fixed price. They really are danger areas. Academic stuff are danger areas as well. 
we, we you know we do academic work but it has to be a very clear definition because um, by their very nature they, they want to mess around they want to try things um, uh, so you know it's it's, it's, it's it's every not every job is different really but there is enough differences to keep it interesting it really is you've been using I, I, I figure the the same kind of architecture you have for years there are as as you mentioned you know the, the object oriented LVOOP and all that have you been considering, you know, uh, migrating your technique to adopt the new LVOOP technology, or how is that going? Yeah, yeah. Well, the the, the bit I'm interested in, to me, I I, I had quite a, a long conversation with Mr. Bursa about it, and, and because I, I I looked at it and said, well, look, I've spent the last sort of ten years trying to to say that the VI is to me the cohesive lump which you send messages to. Then I bring LVOOP out, and it's uh, the the cohesive lump is the, the the line essentially. It's the instance, and then you have methods which are VIs. And I think no, no VI should be. But of course, I, I I they have to design it like that. If they'd have gone higher up this the sort of abstraction tree, it would have been restricting for people. Um, of course, I got all bent out of shape. I'm like, no, 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 this can't work. And and for for a couple of years, I sort of just parked it and said, well, you know, I'm I'm busy. I haven't got time to to sort of think about it anyway. I'm, I'm, it was really the doing the uh, I did the, the uh, a lab view smells presentation uh, in the the Euro Summit, which essentially I was looking at anti patterns. Um, and a lot of the reason for me doing that is was because of these. Very difficult to look after systems. I, I was just getting the feeling that the National Instruments was providing an awful lot of tools for people to make very, very, very complex systems out of, which they then couldn't look after. Um, have you ever heard of the Software Peter Principle? What, what does that describe? That well, the Software Peter Principle is is where the architecture becomes so complex that the people designing it can't even understand it. And and I know there was a little bit of that to some of these sort of projects. You think, you know, you you're you you just got quite complex. I'm going off track here. What was I talking about? Um, <laughs> but it was it was those sort of. I, I, I you were was talking about the the anti patterns. Yeah, and I was looking at the, so I was thinking, well, there must be anti patterns here, and then some very interesting um, things. So when when we did the book, we kept it very simple. So we didn't talk about all the different types of coupling. We didn't talk about all the different types of cohesion in any detail and how they applied to LabVIEW. There is one type of coupling which I think is very interesting to a lot of these architectures, and that's control coupling. Um, and this control coupling is is where you send data into a module that changes the way it works. So you can think of a queued message uh, state machine. Um, so one of the systems I had had lots of TCP/IP stuff and lots of modules all over the place, all chatting to each other, and all and they were all state machines, all done by the standard sort of state machine template. But they were essentially all chatting to each other, changing each other's state, which just made the thing a complete nightmare to to visualise. You just could not visualise what was going on, and I, and I do suspect that there's there's quite a lot of sort of architectures that even the taught ones that have got this awful, awfully easy way to, to to park data into other modules and make these modules do stuff, but they don't think about how this affects our brains, you know, because we can't we can't visualize that. And if you can't visualize it, you can't debug it. Um, so 
I was very I started getting very interested again in the the academic stuff. It's stuff I'd put down sort of ten years ago, and and because I've been busy sort of writing software, I, I haven't really come back to it. And I was a bit disenchanted with the whole process. I have to say. Well, I mean, Steve, there's there's a lot of I mean, when you're in the trenches and developing projects and and delivering to customers, um, there's there's different design approaches that you can take, and you look at the project and see you know how each design can fit into that. And I think LCOD is is excellent in that it kind of uh, it abstracts out all the complexity of what's going on underneath to the VI level. I just I just like the way it works and. You know, I use LVOOP as well on many projects. Um, I'm starting to dabble in Actor Framework. But I think the message we should tell people is that, you know, you really have to stick with whatever you're comfortable with and whatever your team works with and how you can deliver successful projects that are maintainable. Um, yeah, I, yeah, whether, yeah. Whatever yeah. technology you use, right? Yeah. Well, and the only other, whatever technology you use, I think there's two or three things that I would add. There's the only technology you use is that when you give away the block diagram to someone, they've got to be able to understand what your thinking is. Because that's that's your your mechanism for communicating your thoughts is is the block diagram as far as I'm concerned. And if it's so abstract, if if somebody came to me and, and worked for me and gave me something that was so abstract I could I really had to concentrate to understand it, I'd reject it. Um, so I'm not excluding all clever software in the entire world, but you know, it, it, it's a, the the solution has to be as clever as the problem, really. Well, you know, it's, it's, sometimes you don't need it to be really complex. The block diagram is is your mechanism for communicating to people, and and there's no reason an LV OOP program designed from scratch off UML diagrams and that is isn't a fantastic way to communicate your ideas. I mean, I've I've seen very very good ones, but it's you, like all these things, you you have to apply the same design criteria as you would to to Elcod. It's it's all it's all design in the end, isn't it? That that's the job of the designer is 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 to to simplify the complex. Well, Steve, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, it's I I could go on for another hour. I've have a lot of other ideas to talk about. Maybe we'll have you back again. Um, I'll, well, well, I'll be coming over hopefully this year. So uh, I, I'd really I, I mean. There's a small part of me that still thinks I'm missing a trick. Um, well, a big part of me that thinks I'm missing a trick because, like all programmers, I'm a bundle of insecurities. So <laughs> we'll have to sit down and we'll have to fresh out, I reckon. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's I think, what everyone should be doing is always sharpening their, their sword and, you know, always improving their techniques and always striving to be better. So, uh, Steve, thank you. Thank you for, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you like the VI Shots podcast, you can support us by going to episode 27 at vishots.com and leaving us feedback in the comments section of this post. If you are listening in iTunes, we'd appreciate uh, any feedback for the uh, VI Shots podcast. Thanks again for listening and bye for now.